0: The small West African country of the Gambia has lodged a suit at the International Court of Justice against Myanmar for committing a genocide against the Rohingya people. The Rohingya are an ethnic and religious minority in Myanmar who have long faced discrimination and persecution, but it was not until the summer and fall of 2017 that this persecution became a mass atrocity event and arguably a genocide. Some 700,000 Rohingya fled violence in this time, and now more than a million live as refugees in neighboring Bangladesh. Justice for the Rohingya victims of this genocide has so far been elusive. But this action at the International Court of Justice, which is a UN body based in The Hague, the Netherlands, could be a significant turning point. On the line with me to discuss the significance of this lawsuit is Parampreet Singh. She is an associate director of Human Rights Watch in the International Justice Program. And in our conversation, she explains what exactly this lawsuit alleges, why the Gambia is the country bringing the suit, and how this action may advance the cause of justice for victims of crimes against humanity we kick off with a brief discussion of the International Court of Justice and how the judicial process at the ICJ works. I think you'll appreciate this conversation, even if you are not an international legal eagle. As uh, Perempreet Singh told me after we stopped recording the podcast, uh, she found the conversation both highbrow and accessible. And I suspect you will as well. And just a few announcements before we start. I wanted to tell everyone about a new podcast on the block you may like from our friends at Foreign Policy Magazine and the Brookings Institution. It's called And Now the Hard Part. And the show focuses on something I particularly appreciate learning, and that's solutions to some of our great global challenges. Join FP Editor-in-Chief Jonathan Tepperman and expert guests from Brookings as they dig into those solutions. You can find And Now the Hard Part wherever you get your podcasts. And today's episode is brought to you by the Masters in Peace and Justice program at the Joan B. Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. This program is designed for individuals seeking knowledge, skills, and practical experience to address a wide range of peace and social justice issue and includes hands-on field-based opportunities in Rwanda, Colombia, and Mexico. The program prepares students for careers in conflict resolution, human rights, social entrepreneurship, education, development, and advocacy. No GRE is required to apply, and part-time options are available. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace to learn more. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sbs.northwestern.edu slash global. All right, and now here is my conversation with Parampreet Singh of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health award-winning journalists and authors and frontline public health workers join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in june global health matters is available on apple podcasts spotify and youtube
1: It's an exciting development because, you know, Myanmar has this sort of brutal history of atrocities with respect to the Rohingya Muslim ethnic group in Rakhine State. And until now, they've really been able to benefit from the world looking the other way. And, you know, Gambia, in bringing a lawsuit to the International Court of Justice alleging genocide, uh, violations of the Genocide Convention is really the first real opportunity to hold Myanmar to account. So
0: maybe let's take a step back here. What is the International Court of Justice, the ICJ?
1: So the International Court of Justice is, um, it's the uh, one of the primary organs of the UN system. It's what is often referred to as the World Court. And that's where, you know, all countries can go to the International Court of Justice if they have a dispute to settle. Um, it's, it's only open to states. It's not open to individuals. And it re- really is about, you know, finding a, a legal or a judicial path to resolve disputes so that, that they don't escalate.
0: So so basically, it's the forum in which states can sue each other or uh, if, if there's some sort of dispute between them. It is not, we should say, the International Criminal Court, another court in, in The Hague, which is an individual criminal court, as opposed to a place where states can adjudicate their disputes.
1: That's exactly right.
0: So- what does this suit from Gambia actually say, actually allege?
1: Well, it's basically alleging um, a number of violations of the Genocide Convention. Um, in essence, you know, in a nutshell, it's saying, look, like since at least 2016, the sort of quote-unquote clearance operations launched by the by Mil- Myanmar's military um, have been executed in a way that reflects an intent to destroy the Rohingya ethnic group in whole or in part. Uh, And it goes through a number of different incidents um, to sort of flesh out that um, hypothesis. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's saying, look, Myanmar, you know, let's call this for what it is. This is genocide and we're looking for um, uh, a determination from the world court along those lines.
0: Myanmar is a, a party of the genocide convention and so they're getting sued for violating that?
1: That's exactly right. And that's what's so unique about this. You know, Myanmar has already signed up for these obligations. So this is really just Gambia using this avenue that's available to hold them to it.
0: Okay. So so why of all countries in the world is the Gambia the one launching this suit? This is the smallest country in Africa why why is gambia the one that is uh you know that really has no discernible interest uh, you know mm-hmm. in in myanmar why gambia
1: so i mean i think you put your finger on what's Uh, So great in a way um, about this action. I mean, obviously, holding Myanmar to account is primary. But, you know, the fact that this, as you pointed out, a small state emerging from its own brutal dictatorship, you know, trying to reestablish or establish itself as a leader uh, in the world, I think, is is pretty remarkable. Um, I think it also shows how one person can really make a difference. I was at an event in New York, uh, in September and the Minister of Justice, who's really been the engine behind all of this, um, he, uh, he had a really compelling story as to why he got involved. It turns out, and you know, I'm sure uh, you, maybe your listeners, maybe your listeners will be, will have um, uh, facts that they'd like to add to this. But basically, what he had said was, "Look, I there was a a meeting of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation back in I think May of 2018." And we should and
0: say this is an international organization made up of Muslim majority countries called the OIC. There's like 57 members of the OIC.
1: Exactly. And they have these annual meetings of foreign ministers. And in 2018, it happened to be in Bangladesh. And Bangladesh um, has uh, houses, you know, more than a million refugees from Rohingya refugees and others from Myanmar, um, who fled the country, fled Myanmar as a result of the clearance operations. Uh, That I mentioned earlier. And he spoke of his experience, you know, he wasn't supposed to go to that meeting, his foreign minister couldn't go, he stepped in at the last minute. Um, He spoke to a lot of refugees in in these camps. And and essentially, what he said was, look, like, I heard their stories and, you know, really um, resonated with me as someone who prosecuted um, cases from the Rwandan genocide. He used to be a prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And I think because of his particular Sort of professional background. He was, you know, in the I hesitate to say the right place at the right time, but he was in a critical place, critical place at a critical moment. And you know, I think he himself is just a leader. So he he took this up. He really used the OIC platform to, you know, get the regional body to 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 advance accountability.
0: So, so and that's where we are. And and his name is Abu Bakar Tambadu you that right?
1: exactly. That's and, right, Minister and, Justice you know, Tamadu.
0: Yeah, so he's the current Minister of Justice of Gambia, former prosecutor at what's called the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And, you know, as you said, was was sort of at the critical place at the critical time and just happens to be an upstander uh, and, and said, you know, we can do something about this, even though we are this this small country.
1: Exactly, exactly. And this is really, I mean, this is just as much a story about, you know, one person and one country's leadership. Um, as it is about providing that, you know, providing much needed leadership to address, you know, a very serious, uh, heartbreaking crisis. And so talk me
0: through the process now. Um, So this, this suit was lodged uh, earlier this week in The Hague. What happens next? What, What are the process and procedures of the ICJ that we should know?
1: So it's, I mean, to be clear, it's going to be a long haul. Um, You know, the other instance, uh, one example, and I think one of two instances where this mechanism has been used, where a, a country has brought another country to the International Court of Justice using the genocide convention, is when Bosnia brought Serbia to um, the ICJ in 1993, that case wasn't re- resolved until 2007. So it gives you a sense of, you know, how long this could go on. It doesn't have to. I mean, a, a lot of it is because there was a lot of procedural back and forth between those countries. But, I mean, the wheels of justice at the ICJ turned slowly. But I think what's especially notable about this action is that Gambia has asked for what's called provisional measures. And those, it's, it's basically um, a list of things that Myanmar, asking for court order, Telling Myanmar not to do or to do certain things to preserve the rights of the parties uh, to the action. And in this case, it really just means, you know, a a critical portion of those provisional measures they've asked for is to tell Myanmar to stop committing any acts, ongoing acts of genocide. An
0: injunction to stop committing genocide.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Huh. And in terms of the timeline for that, um, that timeline is much shorter. In the Bosnia case, it took the court only 19 days to order those measures. Um, here, I think they're, they're still waiting for the court to to schedule a time for for oral hearings. Um, but I think they're expecting it uh, before the end of the year. But let's see.
0: So you said that the Bosnia case, which was lodged in 1993, it took the court 19 days to issue that injunction against committing genocide. That's but right. of course, you know the, um, the one of the worst acts of genocide occurred in 1995. It's for Two years mm-hmm. after that, that, injunction. So I, th- I think the upshot here is that these court orders don't have too much of an effect on the ground unless you know countries actually abide by them.
1: Yes, I mean, I would also, I guess, distinguish Bosnia from this situation, is because that was a situation of ongoing conflict. So there were a lot of different factors at play. So it's not, it's not sort of the perfect, um, it's not the, it doesn't provide the perfect analogy, but I think you're right. Of course, it really depends on the kind of. Political cost that other states bring to bear um, to really enforce the spirit of the provisional measure, to enforce the spirit of the provisional measures, and really put pressure on Myanmar to um, to change its course of action.
0: So, I mean, is that in the end what you see as the significance of this this move, it just in the sense that it could focus international attention on the genocide in of Rohingya in Myanmar?
1: Well, I think it's really, you know, there's definitely a, you know, a broader sort of uh, geopolitical significance. And I can talk about that in a minute. But I think it's really important to remember how, you know, how critical this path is for victims. You know, this is pretty much the only open judicial door right now. And it was really interesting. We had um you know, we discussed this um, Gambia's move actually with the Minister of Justice earlier this week in The Hague, um, together with some Rohingya activists. And just for them to hear from them what it meant, you know, to their communities to hear, you know, one of them said, you know, it's it's this is the you've given us Gambia, you've given us the chance to be human and history is made his, is made now. Uh, and you know, and the the uh, Minister of Justice Tambudzai saying, you know, look, you, we want you to know that that your suffering, it's your suffering that we want to expose to the world, and that your voice will be our, our voice. Um, so I think that you really can't underestimate the the power that this action brings in terms of helping, you know, victims communities feel recognised and to know that while they themselves won't get a day in court, their experiences will.
0: And I'm very sympathetic to that argument, I should say as well. You know, years ago, I was, you know, a lowly intern in the office of the prosecutor in the case against Slobodan Milosevic uh, at the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And you know, one one sort of experience I remember from that is just meeting victims and getting victims' testimony. I mean, they did get their day in court in that case, but ultimately Milosevic died before the the case was over, but also died after the prosecution had um, rested their case, and so there was, in essence, a robust historical record that was mm-hmm. created. In that prosecution that I think has, you know, despite the fact that he was never convicted because he died before uh, before the case was over, there was this robust historical archive and historical record of crimes committed. And I mm-hmm. do wonder if in the ICJ, if that's also, you know, the case where, where the ICJ, even though, as you said, the wheels of, of justice there turn very, very slowly, if ultimately... That case could create just like a, like a archive of facts of what happened.
1: Yeah. You know, I think I would say uh, just to a, a friendly amendment to what I said before about the wheels of turning of justice, turning slowly. I stand by that, but I would also add, but they're at least they're moving forward. And that's, I think, something that we haven't had, um, you know, until this moment. You know, we've had a lot of, you know, hand-wringing by the international community, but this is really translating translating that into a, a clear path where, mm-hmm. you know, facts will be adjudicated by the world court, and that's, that's pretty powerful. Um, I would also say, so beyond that... Um, this is also an opportunity to raise a political cost on Myanmar for its treatment of the Rohingya uh, in the country. The six hundred thousand that remain in the country, who, you know, live under the threat of ongoing genocide—that's what the UN uh, found uh, last month, or at least the UN was told last month in the UN General Assembly—and also. So, so just this-
0: saying, so just kind of stop you there. So, having the spotlight on them through this case might confer a degree of protection upon the Rohingya remaining in Myanmar. That is, the government would be less want to commit crimes against them if they know that they're being watched by the International, Criminal, uh, the, the International Court of Justice.
1: Yes, yes. I mean, it definitely raises the stakes in that respect. And then I would also say that it also raises the political cost for other bodies that could take action to ramp up the pressure on Myanmar. And here I'm thinking of the UN Security Council. And, you know, look, up until now, the UN Security Council, so 15 members, um, five permanent ones, China is a permanent member. So you can imagine what the dynamics are um, on this within the council. It's pretty deadlocked. Um, but because, again, just- because
0: China has expressed support, has commercial interests in Myanmar and is not willing to want to, you know, use the Security Council to intervene in the domestic affairs of Myanmar. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Um, I think this also, and, and this comes back to the provisional measures that I that I mentioned earlier, this injunction relief. So, you know, all things go to plan or, you know, um, um, an optimistic outcome, which I think is is also realistic, is that you get a court order, you know, basically telling Myanmar, hey, you have to stop committing genocide. Um, and you need to tell your military to stop as well. And also you need to not destroy evidence. Um, You know, those provisional measures under the the International Court of Justice's founding statute, those are automatically sent to the Security Council. And, you know, that I think gives Mm. all of us something to work with in terms of pressuring the council to really look at this crisis with fresh eyes, to understand that this is something that they need to address.
0: And so, you know, it seems from like a justice perspective um, in terms of like international judicial institutions, the ICJ, the world court is like the second best place to um, prosecute or adjudicate claims of, of genocide. The first best place would probably be the international criminal court where individuals could be held criminally mm-hmm. accountable for genocide, but that the geopolitics of the situation don't really allow for that right now. Right. Because mm-hmm. um. Myanmar is not a member of the treaty that created the international criminal court. So it does not automatically fall under its jurisdiction. So the only way it could come under its jurisdiction is through a referral of the security council. But as you said earlier, China as a permanent member of the security council would not likely approve a resolution uh, conferring ICC jurisdiction on Myanmar. So now we're left with this sort of second best option. Um,
1: yeah. And maybe if I could just add one thing to that, yeah. that just in terms of the link between the two, um, you know, yes, I think yes, obviously we would love to see as a human rights organization, individuals held to account um, for atrocities committed in Myanmar, including genocide, but, but other crimes as well. But I mean, just in terms of the value of the ICJ process, I think it's a good reminder that the state isn't a nameless, faceless entity. You know, people are responsible for these crimes and, you know, the ICJ process can help increase the expectation that individuals will be held to account. In what way? Uh, Well, in the sense of raising the cost on the Security Council, I mean, for an ICC referral, as you mentioned, but also perhaps, you know, pressuring states, for instance, in the region to think of alternatives, you know, maybe it's an ad hoc court, um, you know, hosted by a state in Asia that can use some of the evidence that um, there's another UN body that's uh, gathering evidence of ongoing crimes and preserving it for use in criminal proceedings. Um, Maybe that, you know, creating a a path or a linkage between that UN body, it's called the uh, the. Independent international mechanism for Myanmar. I think that's right, um, but to sort of feed into an accountability process outside of the UN Security Council's purview.
0: So you you think like what they call in the business an ad hoc court? That is um, something like what the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda or Yugoslavia was. Um, mm-hmm. That that's that's like a an actual possibility. Because, again, wouldn't something like that require, if it has, like, human languages, like passage, you know, approval of the Security Council?
1: So the Security Council certainly could create one. Um, but I think then we're still going to confront the same problems with China. But uh, maybe I wouldn't use the term ad hoc. Perhaps it's better to to say regional. So a regional court set up with the agreement of a number of states, perhaps, you know, endorsed by the General Assembly, um, but, you know, primarily set up by these states to start trying cases. You know, that's one possibility. I'm not saying that at this moment it's likely, but... You know, you have to sort of look at this. It's, it's a long game. Accountability is always a long game. And these different paths um, or threads can help reinforce this idea that there does have to be individual accountability. And we need to be a bit more creative about what that looks like.
0: So earlier, you hinted at some broader geopolitical significance of, of this lawsuit. What, what do you see as, as some of the, the the geopolitics surrounding this this lawsuit at the ICJ?
1: Well, I think just in terms of countries that would prefer to deal with Myanmar in isolation of its human rights record um, because of commercial interests, business interests, um, I think that this makes it harder. You know, as the process unfolds, um, as more facts come to light, as Myanmar's sort of responsibility as a state and the state policies of cruelty that it's used against the population, um, it, it just sort of shrinks the space for plausible deniability. What that looks like in practical terms, it's hard to know um, because we're really just at the beginning. But I think our role in civil society is to really make the most of that process to amplify that message and make it harder for states to pretend that nothing happened and that they can move ahead you know, with business as usual.
0: So assuming that the ICJ issues this injunction, um, what... What events or what signals or what you know uh, um, developments will you be looking for in the coming weeks or months that will suggest to you, you know, what the next steps in this process would look like, or what effect that this injunction might have or not on the ground?
1: Well, I think even before we can get to that question, um, I think you know one of the first questions to answer is what's Myanmar going to do? How are they going to engage in this process? Um, and interestingly, uh, as part of the provisional measures that Gambia has requested, they've also asked the court to order both Gambia and Myanmar to report on the implementation of the measures identified. So how do they plan to, which I think is a really, you know, really clever because it does help to sort of create a check-in process that Myanmar has to engage with. And you know what? They could just wash their hands of the proceedings completely, similar to what they did before the International Criminal Court. Um, We can talk about that separately if you want. But, you know, this is a world court. All countries are a party to it. It's not like the ICC, which is, you know, a treaty-based body that states have to sign up for. Um, and it it has signed up for the genocide convention so then it enjoys this lawsuit enjoys a sense of sort of international legitimacy or an imprimatur of legitimacy if you will that you know they ignore it at their peril
0: and so one option you're saying for Myanmar could just be like not to show up just to ignore the proceedings mm-hmm. another option could be to engage and try to defend themselves
1: yes um, but I think you know the facts are very much against them given how much. Reporting there's been by UN um, UN bodies, uh, special rapporteur. You know, a number of states have also come out to allege that Myanmar has committed genocide. So, again, it's really just about shrinking that space for plausible deniability. This is a really important way to do that.
0: And I, I guess from Myanmar's point of view, what what um, what's your motivation to actually want to engage in this in this process, like? Is it just so they're not seen as, as a total pariah? Uh,
1: why they would want to engage in the process? Yeah. Uh, well, because because otherwise, you know, I think the the risk is that because this is, this does have the potential to be such a powerful narrative um, that, you know, they have in, an, in, clearly an interest in trying to de-escalate it as much as possible. I mean, on the international stage, but also I think... You know, they have to think about their domestic constituency. You know, they also have a certain um, story that they sell internally to keep up, you know, maintain their grip on power the military and the government um, and really feed into this um, hatred of the Rohingya in, within the country. Um, so, you know, again I can I can't step inside their head to sort of figure out how they would do their cost-benefit analysis. I have to wonder if also the fact that they're trying to maintain a certain domestic narrative, mm-hmm. you know, that might incentivize them to articulate that on the world stage. Mm-hmm. So, you know.
0: you were about to make a parenthetical point about the International Criminal Court. I'll, I'll make one quick parenthetical point about it too, which coincidentally is that it's led by a Gambian woman named Fatu Bensuda, who is their prosecutor. So Gambia is at, just at the center of, of this all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> uh, so what I was going to say about the International Criminal Court is that we're still waiting to hear. So the, the ICC prosecutor, Ben Fatu Fatou Ben Suda, she's requested an investigation into uh, a limited set of crimes, primarily the crime of deportation. Um, and the way that she's able to do that, because as you mentioned, Myanmar isn't a party to the Rome statute, the ICC's treaty. But she's saying, look, because the crime of deportation was only completed when victims cross the border into Bangladesh. And lo and behold, Bangladesh is a member of the ICC. We believe we have jurisdiction to at least look at that crime and perhaps a couple of other related crimes. Hmm. So she's asked for permission from the court's judges to open that investigation. And we're just waiting to hear whether or not that will be granted.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. So basically this is like the Gambia's world. We're just living in it. (laughs)
1: at least um, when it comes to justice for Myanmar.
0: Um, well, well, thank you so much, Parampreet. This was very, very fascinating.
1: Of course, anytime.
0: All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Parampreet Singh for coming back on the show to discuss the prospects for justice uh, for the range of people. Uh, also, if you want to learn more about the Gambia, uh, go check out the episode I did on. Uh, the country just about the time in which uh, the people of the Gambia were in the process of ousting their former corrupt and and venal leader uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago now. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I can't imagine there's much in uh, the podcast world uh, about the situation in the the Gambia, but I've done an episode on it and I'm, I'm proud to share it with you. So go check it out. All right, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.